This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Giselle Donnelly, Senior Fellow in Defense and National Security at the American Enterprise Institute. Giselle and Roger discuss the ongoing war in Ukraine, American foreign and defense policy towards Ukraine and Taiwan, and the challenges facing American national security. Ms. Giselle Donnelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's good to see you again. Now, you are a senior fellow in defense and national security at the American Enterprise Institute, and you focus on national security and military strategy. Uh, you were on the Armed Services Committee staff, which is actually the most distinguished element of your bio, given uh, you and I share our time in the HASC. Uh, we won't talk about uh, the quadrennial defense review, which you introduced, that we'll leave that as an inside joke. Um, which ultimately got struck from 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 the uh, Title X U.S. Code. But you are uh, someone who focuses and writes frequently on Ukraine, which we'll talk about, as well as author of a new book. Just give us a little... Uh, little elevator speech on, on, this, the- on this new publication, Tom. Uh, well, you know, Roger, it's interesting because the I would say certainly one of the big inspirations for... For writing the the book or the series of books was my time uh, as an armed services committee staffer. Luckily, I never rose to the heights of being a staff director like you did and had to, you know. You just elevated me. I was a mere general counsel and deputy, uh, but I appreciate uh, that. Whatever, whatever. You had to manage. You had to manage the herd. So that was the you know that's the hardest part of the job. I, I certainly remember that. Um, but it was when I was there in the 1990s and mid 1990s after the infamous or famous uh, Gingrich uh, revolution and during the Balkans wars. Um, it, it was an interesting time to serve. Um, and just long story short, you know, the the chairman, Floyd Spence, and the other senior members of the committee um, were obviously very skeptical of anything that had Bill Clinton's name on it. If Bill Clinton was for it, they thought maybe they should be against it. But oddly enough, um, pretty quickly, I was struck by how this underlying, you know, principled and moral instinct emerged. Those guys probably still couldn't tell you the difference between a Serb and a Croat and a Bosniak, but they knew that there were good guys and bad guys um, and atrocities going on and that America had the power and sort of the moral obligation to prevent the bad stuff from happening. I mean, again, it wasn't a complex uh, philosophical point, but it turned the most conservative members into people who thought that American intervention in what was described as the small teacup war in Central Europe was a pretty vital American interest. And it made me wonder, well, especially since we don't have the Soviet Union as a a framing construct for how we should behave in the world. What are the internal motivations that push us forward? And like everybody else, I read through the founding era pretty. I mean, you know, when you're a staffer and you have a lot of time on your hands waiting for (laughs) members to summon you and you have access to the Library of Congress, um, you can do some pretty deep research just sitting around waiting uh, for stuff to happen. 
And the far, I just kept going backward and backward, trying to discover what the motivating roots of American behavior in the world were, and that's led to to this series of books. And I mean, I, I, I mean, we're, we're, well, I, I began. You know, it, there's a logic here that was sort of inescapable, and that was in the original English colonization of um, of North America. You read the sort of rhetoric of the time, and it sounds so modern. It sounds like us. Um, you know, first of all, they're in a you know great power competition with Habsburg Spain, and they're behind, like way behind. Uh, Spain's gotten all the low-hanging fruit from the Aztecs and the Incas, and it's up to uh, English colonists to, to, you know, in order to compete as, as a European great power, they have to be a global power. It's a global, it's a newly globalized world, and that's those are the external realities of of the time book and hold it up for our viewers i shall i'm more than happy to do so i hope uh, if you can read it this is volume one uh actually the title of the series is the personality of american power this is a george kennan quote uh i'm sort of using kennan's techniques from uh uh, his you know famous articles of 1946 sure. and the long telegram and the title of volume one is empire imagined so this is kind of the well, primordial ooze where our uh approach to military power well, sort of crawls out that. of the swamp empire imagine uh we'll have to have you back to go in depth on this uh and, and the colonization uh, I, I can make eight shows for you i'm yeah, sure yeah well, well great well we'll, well we'll start with this and we'll just keep on okay, going, you know? <laughs> okay. Uh, but actually as you're describing this this book series and 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 what piqued your interest and your reflections on your time in the House Armed Services Committee and you have you know the uh, well Floyd Spence was the chairman from South Carolina and he didn't like anything that Bill Clinton was doing but then looked at the Bosnian War as I heard you say and kind of thought about it in terms of good guys and bad guys and uh, this language of moral obligation is what you said that's probably a good launching point to talk about the war in Ukraine which is something you write about frequently in your perch at AEI and and think deeply about. Now, Republicans these days don't like to talk much about more obligation when it comes to foreign policy and national security. Certainly many Republicans don't. Even those who believe there's a moral obligation in foreign policy tend to retreat to a more realist argument and think about what is and is not a vital national security interest. Giselle, why is Ukraine prevailing in the conflict, in the war uh, with Russia, vital to U.S. national security. You did a bit of an eye roll there for our viewers. It's kind of like you're tired of having to make this argument, but do it one more time for us. No, I'm delighted to do it, actually. <laughs> um, it, but I, I, I guess I'm puzzled a little bit why f people find this hard to grasp. I mean, this is about the balance of power in Europe as it exists now. And that has always been the number one security interests of the United States. Again, if you went back to the if you if you had George Washington on your program or uh you know Alexander Hamilton or somebody like that, they would think well you know they saw themselves as emerging as a country in the midst of a contest between revolutionary France and Great Britain. So they were keenly aware of the European balance of power and how America's interests were inextricably intertwined with that. And circumstances have changed. 
we are no longer the weak power that we were in uh, 1787 when the Constitution was ratified. Uh, but our interests remain the same. And also, um, it, it is a critical element in sort of what I would describe as the three-legged stool of global power. Um, uh, the balance of power in Europe, the balance of power in East Asia, and the balance of power of in the greater Middle East. Those have been the three principal, you know, since time immemorial and certainly since the end of the Second World War, very explicitly, the the three regions of the world that come that go up, go into making what Bob Kagan describes as the world America made. And it's it's not, you know, simply a good thing, but it is a good thing. It's it's good for us. It's good for other people. It makes us rich in a way that we've never been rich before. It makes us secure in a way we've never been uh, before. Uh, and it it, um, it it is a manifestation of the principles that hold this country together. Well, so balance of power, good realist arguments. You know, Henry Kissinger would head nod at, at what you're describing here. And we don't have to talk about morality and moral obligations and the like. Um, but there's something else going on, Giselle, and that is it's the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq. Right. And it feeds the discussion about what happens when the U.S. sticks its nose into regional conflicts uh, or invites itself and get in get into these endless wars. We're not good at this. It, it, it results in the loss of blood, so many lives lost and, and, and treasure as well. And so here we are 20 years post Iraq. Doesn't it make sense for people to say, Hey, you know, we don't need to do anything that would lead to escalation of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, we could stand with the Ukrainians. We could, even give some money, although $100 billion perhaps is more than we should give or certainly enough. Um, but let's not do anything that's going to result in escalation and a wider conflict in Europe when then it's going to be more treasure and possibly blood. So that is a concern you're hearing across the country, certain by elected Republicans or some, uh, and one that seems to be resonating in the polls. So you know, with the, with the shadow of Iraq, Giselle Donnelly, and you and I worked on this, on Iraq, that is, uh, when I was in the Armed Services Committee staff and you were the you know, thought leader for the American Enterprise Institute. Here we are, uh, you know, 20 years later. Is there is there some credence to this argument? Well, I would certainly take the point that the way that our failure in Iraq uh, has cast a long shadow uh, over American uh, strategy ever since. I hope this is an occasion for the beginnings of a more thoroughgoing evaluation. I'm not trying to relitigate Iraq right now, but I would just say what it shows is the consequences not of us sticking our nose in, but of sticking our toe in the water. Um, uh, and again, this is a subject for probably 12 more programs, but the, the big failure to me I mean, we we kind of end up in the worst of with the worst of worst of two worlds kind of situation. Um, committed to the invasion, but not the reconstruction of Iraq. So we tried to just sort of look, take a slice of the pie rather than consider 
the, the pie as the whole. And I worry that we would be repeating a similar mistake or or could repeat a similar mistake um, in the case of Ukraine by abstracting Ukraine, by thinking of it as just a border dispute in the most narrow way possible, rather than an element in this larger picture that touches on our vital interests that, that we described earlier. So, um, and, and one huge difference between Iraq and Ukraine is that there's a, a you know, consolidated, real, uh, unified Ukraine. I mean, the, 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 the bloodshed that Ukrainians have suffered uh, is just extraordinary. Oh, no, no doubt. There are so many differences. So I mean, we should Ukraine back a winner. We, I mean, we have a, a clear winner which we can back at no cost in American lives um, and uh, a relatively low price uh, in, in treasure to reap a, a great strategic reward. It's are there you, for us. Particularly to what the great you know, what strategic reward is. I mean, couldn't you make the argument, hey, you know, here we are a year plus into the conflict in you know, 2023 and the Russian conventional military has been degraded. How much more are we going to get? So, you know, that kind of yeah, I, I just think that's strategic calculus. We we could check the box on what more do we have to gain? A, a, an immense amount. I mean, I, I would look back and you know, another one of my uh recent endeavors has been a podcast that I, I do with a couple of my AI colleagues and uh uh, uh, Middle East Institute college. and shamelessly promote that podcast. I well, no, I mean, I, I, no, I mean, there's enough of a podcast universe for both of us, Roger. Uh, <laughs> and and people who listen to our podcast would like to listen to yours, and and vice versa. This is a mutual back scratching thing. So it's called the Eastern Front. This has again sort of been one of my, um, uh, uh, you know, enduring uh, bugaboos, if you will. After the Cold War, there was a whole swath of Central and Eastern Europe from the Baltic to the Black Sea that was liberated from Soviet oppression. M much of that was incorporated into the West, into, the, into NATO, into the European Union, but some of it wasn't. And in, in fact, uh, Ukraine in particular, arguably the most important strategic piece of the puzzle was left out. With the consequence that you, this part of Eastern Europe has been a no man's land and a temptation to Russian uh, revanche ever since. So we're seeing something that, that we, to the degree that we created the, the circumstances, it was because not because we were too forward leaning and expanding NATO, but because we weren't, uh, didn't see the whole picture and we left, you know, breadcrumbs out there or pieces of chum in the water for the sharks of Moscow uh, to attack. This is our opportunity to rectify that strategic error. Again, um, in, it's not, and it's not just the Ukrainians. I mean, how the Poles have transformed themselves militarily. Man, they've turned themselves into the, the kind of uh, NATO ally that we've been dreaming about. Yeah, tell us uh, more about that. I mean, they have certainly been and and geography. Yeah, no, they, no, they are to do with this, right? I mean, they are building up their defenses, and they are the most aggressive in terms of 
giving Ukraine support in the form uh, most recently of MiG aircraft, right? So fighter aircraft. Uh, right. what, but, but but take us through what what where the polls were and where they are now uh, a year into this war. Well, the uh, the polls were very forward leaning amongst the first tranche of uh, Eastern European states that did join NATO. Um, and for all their uh, domestic troubles, which are serious, they have been uh, the most aggressive, the most uh, forward-leaning uh, members of the NATO alliance uh, in Europe ever since. The the size of the Polish army, uh, notably, you know, another thing that we've learned out of this is the uh, superiority and the wisdom of the Reagan defense buildup. It's just incredible to see that F-16s and M-run tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles, all the elements of the of the Reagan buildup that really haven't unfortunately been uh, replaced uh, since then, still are the frontline weapons, to the most um, capable military systems. Just, just contextualize that for a second. What you, I mean, what you just said is... Nobody, nobody understands this, right? As military platforms, and you know, we love talking about Ronald Reagan here on Reaganism. So, you know, I'm not not fighting you on this at all, Giselle. It's 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 invited, but military platforms that the Reagan administration bought at right. scale, right? Uh, that kind of came online, probably second term, end of the second term during the Bush forty one, right? Are here we are you know, approaching 40 years later, in some cases, 40 years later, is the top shelf military equipment that you can buy in conventional armed conflict. Now, I realize there's been upgrades, you know, and iterations from some of these things, but but that's your point, right? Here we exactly. are, we can build up right. what we're using in 2023. Right, the, 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 the M1 tanks that, um, the U.S. Army is operating right. They've got you know enough electronics hanging off them to, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a huge upgrade from what it was. But the hulls that, that house all these systems and so on and so forth, they're built in the 1980s. Okay, um, so the the advantages accrued by the Reagan defense buildup still continue to pay enormous dividends and have rescue us from our kind of, you know, uh, negligent attitude about defense spending since then. So we owe President Reagan, not the United States, but Western Europe and the Western world, our allies owe Ronald Reagan, a huge uh, debt of gratitude. The Penn's top line, obviously, that's another area where you lead on yeah. and, and you have for 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 years now on the budget. But let, let's stick with Ukraine yeah. uh, for for the next few minutes. Um, recent Wall Street Journal op-ed by Nikki Haley, of course, uh, former U.S. ambassador to uh, the United Nations, governor of South Carolina, and uh, presidential hopeful. Title of the op-ed, China wins if Russia conquers Ukraine. And what she is getting at is really a, a debate within Republican circles that our support for Ukraine may actually cut against the more important fight, which is deterring China and in the event of a conflict prevailing against China. She she absolutely uh, 
you know, takes the side of it's the opposite that if Ukraine wins, it helps us vis-a-vis -vis China. And she uh, attacks kind of two lines of argument and two camps, uh, the Biden camp for not doing enough. And you've written about this as well. Uh, really kind of the, the slow drip of, of support as opposed to dealing this in an urgent fashion. Uh, and then she attacks uh, conservatives who say that this is merely a territorial dispute, and, and, and you've just you've just uh, hit on this in part. Um, why don't you give us your take, Giselle, on on the argument that Nikki Haley has outlined in the journal recently, uh, and this discussion of how we balance and how Ukraine impacts China and China or Taiwan and 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 the China Taiwan, which that's the the immediate concern impacts Ukraine. Well, just to connect it. To our last conversation, I mean, the world has seen um, the quality of uh, Western weaponry and the, uh, you know, the, the commitment that motivated military forces such as the Ukrainians have fielded, the battlefield effectiveness of that combination. So what is the question about the use of American power? These days, it's a question of, about our willpower our domestic um, staying power, um, which after the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan that the President Biden initiated, you know, 18 months ago, had hit a real nadir. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm both frustrated beyond measure, but surprised pleasantly in the reaction of uh, the president, because again, after Afghanistan, I wondered whether he would have the moxie to even do what they've done. So they've both exceeded my expectations and right. failed to meet the necessity of the moment. That's sort of a classic Joe Biden thing. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, uh, early on, this is prior to February, you know, explicitly said that he would accommodate or allow a, a minor, quote unquote, minor incursion. So, it, you know, it was Afghanistan, they, not only his behavior in terms of allowing right. uh, this sort of thing, but then said he would, you know, wouldn't have a problem with, with, with part of Ukraine being chewed up by the Russians. Well, yeah, and, and no doubt his thinking was affected by this uh, sort of curious, curious because it continues, um, feeling that the Russians were a truly powerful, great power, you know, second best army in the world. Uh, that whole uh, uh, myth that, that that still hangs on, um, but um, you know, to to go to the second half of Governor Haley's uh, uh, argument, uh, there, you know, the, the idea that this is simply a border dispute is just really um, a cover story for a larger attitude about, you know, it's almost the old Gene Kirkpatrick blame America first mentality, not coming out of the mouths of uh, radical leftists, but coming out of the mouths of the right wing of the Republican Party. I mean, the, the sort of inversion of the Reagan legacy is is really quite striking. You know, I think it's strategically myopic. Uh, it's it's uninformed. 
Um, you know, but that's that is the political landscape that and of course, we should not forget that these people don't have the votes. I mean, you're a creature of a Congress, Roger. Vote counting is what we do, right? <laughs> But, so but, at but, this point, they they don't have the votes. They do have the the you know they've captured the Twitterverse or the right wing Twitterverse. So there's still a, um, a contest going on between the Nikki Haley's and the Mike Pence's and the Mike sure. Pompeo's, um, and, and uh, you know there there's also a competition for the hearts of the America Firsters. Um, and, no doubt, and they're getting after that and they want yeah. to make sure that, you know, the. But uh, and finally, yeah, finally to go to the, to the China point and to, to tie it in to need a bow. Um, you know, the Chinese are watching us not much more for not or much less for the um tactical and technological lessons to be learned from Ukraine, although those are not unimportant. But the fundamental question for the Chinese is, will the Americans come to the aid of the Taiwanese or the Japanese or our East Asian allies in the event uh, of a crisis or a war? And this, so this is very much about the, you know, you can dismiss this as, uh, you know, sort of, uh, Washington blob thinking, but the idea that that our credibility in the world is, uh, you know, unimportant and easily, you know, something that, that can be, that doesn't carry over from one case to the next uh, is very hard for me to swallow. Right. And whether or not, you know, we, we, we can stick by friends and allies or if we get tired and give up and. Right. You know, and, just, and that's the, that is the message that we have been transmitting for the last 20 dig years. Let's a little bit more because there's, there are two camps. There, you know, there's certainly one camp that's kind of America first and looks at Iraq and Afghanistan and uses the rhetoric of forever war. And really they, they, they would just prefer to build up walls on our border and leave the world to whoever, you know, fills yeah. the vacuum and thinks that we as a country would be better off. That's one view. Neo-isolationists, let's call it that. What about the other camp, which actually believes deeply that the U.S. has vital national security interests in Taiwan or and, and more broadly uh, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and they believe that Ukraine is the distraction from Right. From really doing the investment and hard work uh, that's required to put the United States uh, in a better position to deter China. And one more point on this, uh, Giselle, and, and, and I'd love for you to respond. Mm. I, you know, I think there's some merit to this argument. I'm not persuaded by it, but it, but there is a cautionary tale. Regardless how you feel about Iraq, uh, Giselle, it's very clear that that decade after 9-11 – or a decade and a half until President Trump was elected, the United States didn't focus on China or certainly yeah. didn't adequately focus on China. There are lots of reasons for it, but one reason from the security lens is because we were dealing with the Middle East and we have suffered as a result. So it's reasonable for me to, for, for an analyst out there to say, hey, you know what? Bad things happen when we don't focus on the biggest problem. Right. Adversaries get the advantage. And as much as we think we can get after both problem sets, we're not going to do it as well if we're trying to do two things at once. You know, again, I'm not persuaded by that argument, but I do think 
it's quite different than the neo-isolationist mindset that says just build walls. Now, they seem to be playing with each other, and and, and I think it's a, a deal with the devil, and it could, it could undermine those I care deeply about uh, dealing with a China threat. But, you know, attack that one, Giselle, because it, it's really out there, and it's, it, there's some, um, you know, some good points that you have to deal with. Well, Roger, uh, there is one tiny legacy of my service uh, in Congress that still endures, and that's the annual China military power report. Yeah, by the way, the cute is one. You deserve yeah, the cute for that. Uh, well, okay, uh, I'm happy. Tell everybody to what that is. Uh, why you so deserve every, the report? Well, it's, it is sort of a, the, a recycling of you know again I'm. Uh, you've put me in a very Reagan mindset of the old Soviet military power report that President Reagan and his administration used so effectively to uh, justify um, and to rally domestic political and indeed international political support for the defense buildup of the 1980s. So by, um, you know, drawing attention to the, uh, the nature of the Russian threat of the late 70s and early 80s, which all the smart uh, people were saying was something that we couldn't respond to and therefore had to cut a deal with uh, the Soviet Union, had to take Kissinger and detente to another level. Uh, so, you know, knowledge is an empower, empowering tool, and it's taken a long time. And... Uh, you know, just to tell the Clinton administration offered that as veto bait for the defense authorization bill back in the day. But that also tells us what was really going on in the 1990s. And that was not that that people were um, so they're too. Yes, they were focused on and and. After 9-11, yes, they were focused on the Middle East, but we were also viewing China through the lens of uh, trade and, and uh, uh, business uh, expansion. So it wasn't simply that our security focus was directed toward the Middle East, is that it was also the case that there was a powerful and lar larger justification for, uh, and it was not unreasonable to think that um, you might be able to achieve some security arrangement or you know, stability with the Chinese. No uh, doubt. Hey, but, but let's fast forward. But, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so, and let's also deal with the actual military effects of the case. I mean, if we need a bunch of stingers in order and uh, javelins to defend Taiwan, we've already lost. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so militarily, these Venn in a Venn diagram sense, these these dangers do not overlap hardly at all. So it it is uh, you know, that is a complete canard. Uh, you know, we can't use air, you know, uh, destroyers or submarines too much. So, so, we can't get them into the Black Sea. Let's just so, kind of translate that, okay. that argument because that. Okay. So, we're, you know, if, if, if the Indo Pacific is, a, is primarily or largely an air and maritime theater, Central Europe is a land theater. Okay. So, militarily, quite different cases. There is a serious question, as, as you will well know, about the attention of senior leaders, their ability to think about two things at the same time, particularly probably even worse now in a social media, you know, hothouse environment. Um, but 
again, if that's the disease we are going to be suffering from, we're kind of already behind the eight ball to begin with. I mean, as it, we need to be able, to, if we're going to be a global power, we need to be able to balance these things in decision makers' minds. All right, here, here's what I'm hearing from you, Giselle. Yeah. Just, 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 okay, just, just to summarize. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just because you know, you, you reference some of the the, the platforms or uh, weapons that the United States have given to Ukrainians, uh, and they're the ones that, uh, for limitations on industrial capacity, you know, we we were given to Ukraine, and our stockpiles have gone down, and 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 others have said, okay, well. Shouldn't the focus be on China, and therefore, while we're giving this stuff to Ukraine, give it, give it to China? And you say, well, you know, the the sort of things we're giving to Ukraine in a land conflict would not be relevant uh, yeah. to Taiwan. But isn't there a, a kind of take it up one level, right? Take it up one level higher, which is say, the hundred billion dollars that have gone to Ukraine, or the fifty billion dollars of which that are security assistance, uh, and the type of uh, time and effort that you see our sector of defense devoting to Ukraine, if we just were to do the same thing to the uh, types of weapons and kind of security diplomacy uh, for dealing with a Taiwan scenario, we'd be in a much better position. I'm sympathetic to that because here we are year over year, we're talking about things we need to give the, the you know, the Taiwanese and you know, they just sit kind of on back order. And we're, we're, we're giving the same types of platforms, I don't know, to, uh, to the Saudis, ahead of, and there are reasons for that, uh, to, to those in Taiwan. So, you know, at that level, perhaps not on the munition for munition or weapon for weapon basis, it's less compelling, but at a broader level in terms of the effort and focus, one more time, Giselle Donny, why is that not a, a compelling argument? It is, I mean, the need to sort of, you know, revive the arsenal of democracy is is a, very serious question and a serious worry of mine that has been for some time but again that the cause of that is is not driven by ukraine and the supplies that we've given to ukraine and won't be solved one way you know the outcome in ukraine won't uh, you know if the ukrainians are either defeated in short order or triumphant in short order. It's not like our position vis-a-vis -vis China is going to be material effect, materially affected one way or the other. And there's another factor to be considered. And as again, you look, you know, Japan's becoming sort of like the Poland of the uh, Western Pacific. Right. And that is that is strategically crucial. There's nothing that makes the Chinese quake more than the prospect of a conflict with Japan. They have awful memories of World War II quite, for very good reason. But the fact that Japan is emerging from its pacifism sure. is a great benefit to us strategically. Um, uh, it's going to bring uh, Great initial or further resources. Likewise, uh, the uh, recently concluded um, AUKUS deal, the the deal between the British, the United States, and the Australians to supply the Australians with nuclear submarines. I mean, that is like something that I couldn't have imagined back uh, in my right, so government. You're commenting, hey, you know, we're in the in the context of this emphasis on Ukraine, if I understand you correctly, and, and yeah. the administration, in your judgment, I share your view. 
perhaps is not doing enough with the speed and urgency required, but they're doing stuff, right? Yep. They've also, at least uh, in the kind of this, this security diplomacy, have netted or, or, you know, kind of two really good outcomes, uh, perhaps they're not responsible for entirely, but certainly have encouraged. One, uh, Japan really double down in terms of their defense investment and working with us to deal with security challenges posed by China. And two, this AUKUS deal where working with Australian United Kingdom, uh, we're going to provide the Australians our submarine technology, which of course is our competitive advantage as we think about how we could deal with a, uh, with a Chinese assault on, on Taiwan. So those are things that we're kind of doing in parallel and it, and it demonstrates that, Hey, uh, we're doing two things at once and, yeah. and, and netting some, some benefits. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's true. And that, that's evidence that our, um, you know, sort of, uh, attitudes as a global power still have a lot of resonance because these are, you know, policies that have kind of been translated from one administration to another, you know, sure. all, all administrations have, have, you know, fallen short of what I would have recommended in both cases, but it's nice to see at last the first of all, for us to actually respond appropriately to grave strategic dangers is is a change, um, and to and to consider things in the global context is a uh, is something that we have not done very well since the end of the Cold War. So the glass isn't even half full yet, but at least it's beginning to be filled up. As we go to the end of our conversation here, again, we're with Giselle Donnelly, uh, who with the American, American, excuse me, Enterprise Institute, uh, where she is a senior fellow in defense and national security, talking about Ukraine, talking about China and Taiwan and tension between the two and investment in our national defense. Let's migrate over to another area where you have deep expertise and a long record, which is what is the right level of investment in our national defense? You were talking about the arsenal of democracy and how uh, there's a lot of work to restore that. And early in our conversation, talking about the Reagan buildup and how it continues to have an impact on international security and, and benefits our United States national security interest. I had an event here at the Reagan Institute not too long ago um, where we were talking about industrial capacity. That is, you know, we've had these weapons shortfalls, particularly munitions. And, and, and the reason why we have the shortfalls, we don't actually make enough of this stuff and we don't have the capacity to make more of it. And it led to kind of this moment where the same uh, kind of core ingredients to making a munition that's relevant to Ukraine uh, Giselle, actually is relevant to the types of munitions and weapons you would need for Taiwan. Now, it's not the same weapon itself, but, you know, the ball bearing, for example, would be would, would be right. that. And, and in that respect, there's an argument to be made that if we were to invest in our industrial capacity, like the foundational elements, and we would be doing it because of the general support to Ukraine, it would result in actually a benefit in terms of what needs to be done uh, for a potential Taiwan scenario. I see some head nodding there. Talk about that for a minute. Uh, well, I, I would add also <laughs> we could make some money on it as well. Um, you know, our allies have long understood that, the again, and it's been demonstrated by the 
long service of the Reagan era uh, platforms that American made weaponry is really the best in the world, just flat out uh, superior to what others have been able to produce. Um, and they would still like to be, that's why there's such a backup. And there was before the Ukraine war started in the platforms, you know, people were queuing up to buy M1 tanks, to buy Patriot air defense missiles, to buy F-16s and F-35s. Um, alas, we have let our shipbuilding capacity really atrophy in kind of a catastrophic, uh, you know, way. Not only the 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 strictly naval shipyards, but the commercial shipyards that yeah. Well, we simply don't build ships here anymore. The, the yeah, yeah. No, so that that has been that that's a self-inflicted wound of you know that possibly is the greatest uh, of all. So, um, you know, again, this is another hole we've been digging for several decades now, and it'll take us a while to get out of it. But people are finally coming to realize that the source of the problem is just the lack of investment, okay? These are, these are companies that have, you know, it's, they're weird business structures. You know, if, if Lockheed Martin turned a 20% profit year over year the way Apple does, Congress would be investigating it 17 days a week, right? So as the, it should be, that's monopsony. Well, it's yeah, not, okay. It's not, okay. Know, but there, the, the difference but it's, between Apple and, 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 a, and a company well, that not, not 90 plus percent of its sales, whatever it is, come from U.S. taxpayer dollars. I mean, I think that's right. But, but, but Lockheed has to raise money on a commercial market. So yeah. the government doesn't really... It buys stuff, and it's also a very picky customer. You know, you know the, the government can determine what it pays for stuff. You know, imagine, imagine going to the okay. to the to the butcher and saying, "That's a really nice uh, piece of sirloin you got there. I'd like to pay sixty nine cents a pound for it." Fair, uh, fair enough. Uh, I, I didn't mean to distract. Okay, you. okay, okay. Yeah, no, no, I didn't mean to go down this rat hole hole either. Um, but you know, it it. it you know, so we're capitalists in one way and socialists in another way. <laughs> but but seriously, you get what you pay for. Okay. That is the fun that is the fundamental truth. And we have not paid to keep that technological advantage uh that that was bequeathed to us uh, by Ronald Reagan. It's lasted longer than anybody could have expected, but it is not eternal and it was, you know, it, um, requires continued investment. I mean, the Reagan defense buildup at its very, very peak was still only 6% of gross domestic product. Right. We're hovering and have been hovering more at the 3% range. Uh, of what you had during that period. Yeah. So don't be surprised that, that you don't get well, you know, you and I are in alignment on this, and I had the opportunity to yeah. testify before the Senate Armed Services Committee, you know, not too long ago, and and I was advocating uh, because of the challenge in Europe, because of the challenge in Indo-Pacific with China, and because of the industrial capacity limitations that you add that all up, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but I, you know, can do basic addition, yeah. and it, it kind of takes you to five percent GDP now. Um, that's a trillion dollars, Giselle. Excuse me. You know, oh. th th that's the sort of thing that um, 
you know, it's hard for members to get around. And it's certainly in this environment of, of you know, the, the, the huge deficit to say, hey, we can't afford that. So you're, you're eye rolling. It was, no, I mean, again, let's just keep things in perspective. First of all, uh, it's still a nickel out of what the economy produces, out of every dollar the economy produces. So it's a very small slice of you know, we we are a rich nation. There's no question about that. It's also a pittance compared to, you know, the the pandemic spending we did. The the pandemic stimulus was five times larger than the annual defense budget. So, you know, our ability to to spend money is very case dependent, right? Um, but there's nothing. First of all, and as I'm sure you will agree. The first business of the national government is to secure. Yeah. Okay. So that's it. Like in the constitution, right? Um, and 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 the logic is is compelling. So, you know, you got to look at things in proper perspective in order to make sober decisions. The the money that we spend on national security is a huge value proposition it gives us the ability to you know to be secure wherever we want to go in the world to trade wherever we want in the world and occasionally to to lift people into political liberty around the world that that's the purpose of our country and we happen to be in a particularly uh, challenging environment. Uh, right, right. The, right. The, I'm not, you and I didn't advocate for 5% GDP or 6% GDP a decade ago. Um, well, I didn't, perhaps you were. But the the, <laughs> the point is, is that this notion of the U.S. having military supremacy, which we achieved you know, at the end of the Reagan administration held on to uh, through 9-11 and into the last decade has eroded considerably. And now we find ourselves in a place where there's parity in a lot of areas. And I think that to me is is really the beginning of the discussion. You know, the, the, the Russian military has failed in Ukraine. It's exposed that its conventional military is not what we thought it would be, but they are modernized and their nuclear capability is real. So you have that. Plus, you have a China that is investing in its national defense, you know, 7% growth year over year. And we're no longer the top dog, or if we are the top dog, they're getting very close. That is a market change. And it goes back, Giselle, to your work where you, you called for, you, you as a staff member, you know, the, the China military report. And if that to me more than anything else is the beginning of the answer as to why we need to invest. Now we have to answer questions. Why do we have to invest in our national defense at a level that's more than most nations in the world combined. And, you know, you and I can kind of break that down and explain why that makes sense, but put that aside in the end of the day, it's a very different world right now because our economic you know, security, our our economic prosperity, and the the peace we've enjoyed has been closely tied to our military supremacy. The military supremacy goes away; it puts at risk that economic security and that prosperity. That that's the equation. Yeah. It, look, the Ukraine war reminds us that deterrence can fail. Um, 
if we look at the world through the minds of a dictator like uh, Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, we have to see that, that you know Putin doesn't care how many Russians are killed to capture Bakhmut. Uh, would Xi Jinping be casualty sensitive if he decided to make a play for Taiwan? No, the, the, their whole the existence of their political order is premised on their power. So, you know, when we think about deterring China, we have to we're trying to create an effect in the mind of our adversaries. Okay. The numbers contribute to that. So does the, their calculation of our commitment. Uh, and and in some ways, that's the most uh, important connection between between the two wars beyond the you know sort of geopolitical reasoning. Uh, if we want to prevent Xi Jinping from taking a shot at it. Um, we have a very high bar to meet. And again, he's willing to, if he's going to cross that threshold, he's not going to do it in a tentative way. And he's not going to be watching the body count in a daily way, the way that, that we might. Giselle Donnelly, we're going to move to the lightning round. Thank you for the conversation covering Ukraine, China, defense budgets, Republican hopefuls and their views on national defense and national security. Now let's test your prowess when it comes to Ronald Reagan. You've been good throughout this conversation to sprinkle in Reagan references. We always appreciate that for the historical context. Here we ask you for your favorite book on President Reagan, your favorite speech by President Reagan, and your favorite Reagan quote. What do you got for us? Well, um, let's start with the book. Um, I'm actually currently reading Will Inboden's new book, uh, fairly new book, the 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 peacemaker, you know, I'm a child of the Reagan era, to be sure. I, I you know, I'm the child of uh, Kennedy Democrats. So I came into the thing that that turned my, you know, I remember vividly voting for Ronald Reagan for the first time, not in 1980, but 1984. It was like, you know, it was like an act of rebellion against my parents or something like that. But it was it was a life changing moment. And I think Will comes at it from a perspective that really resonates with me. So uh, I, I would commend uh, your oh, listeners. Peacemaker. Okay. Yeah, that's that's it's a great book. Second one, Roger. Uh, what well, it, it hit me? Speech or quote? That's what I think. Whatever about. you want. Okay, so I got to vote for tear down this wall. Okay, I mean, uh, you know, in our trade, the only thing that gets us out of bed in the morning is the feeling that we might be freedom fighters, right? Uh, you know, winning is good, but winning in the cause of freedom, of human liberty, uh, is even better. And you, you just can't beat that moment. Um, uh, I, instead of building walls, tearing down walls, and setting people free is kind of the way I think about the purpose of the United States of America. So you can't beat that one. Now that, that's your speech. What's your quote? Well, no, that's my that's my quote. Okay. I'm using that as the one line. Okay. You know, if you you know if you had to say, 
um, the one line that encapsulates the president's uh, uh, approach to things, it would be that. So, and I would I would offer the point to Hawk speech mm. as my favorite again for for similar reasons. Uh, my dad was a World War II guy, and not just because you know you look at that speech is very brief, but also the event and the setting. Yeah, you, you know, um, a lot of my professional career has been concerned with issues related to the U.S. Army. And so the picture of those rangers, you know, retired, the guys who climbed the cliff yep. behind, you know, it just, you know, brings tears to my eyes every time I watch the video of it. So that's my favorite. Iconic moment, uh, but... Think but but for the visual as 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 well as the word yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah, like just, Deeper, but, I believe gets gets credit for really kind of seeing that through but it yeah. was quintessentially Ronald Reagan uh, his admiration for the military and and commitment to restoring faith confidence and celebration of those who served uh, as you know Doug Brinkling wrote an entire book about how that speech almost ushered in the era of thinking about your father's generation as the greatest yeah. generation. Of course, Tom Brokaw coined that, but it, in some ways it would, it began uh, when Ronald Reagan delivered that speech. Well, look, he venerated, those were his people. He venerated them yeah. uh, and he held them up as, you know, the distillation of everything American and, you know, when we think of ourselves, uh, you know, the struggle to get up a cliff to begin the liberation of the European continent to 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 sort of semi-quote the speech. That's something to be really proud of. Giselle Donnelly, great to have you on the show. We got to have you back to talk about your first of four volumes. There we go. Yeah, okay. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Raj. Uh, be well. It's good to see you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.